I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Friday, March 29, 1996, and Morris Lindsay watched out over a crowd of nearly 18,000 on hand in Paris to watch the home team defeat Sheffield 30-24 to officially open the English Super League. The night was a year in the making, a year that had seen court battles, a change of seasons, and fan revolt. This is part three of Chapel Town Road, the 28th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm great. How are you? I don't know. It's a bit bittersweet, this episode. For now, anyway, it's the conclusion of our deep dive into the English game. And over the last, you know, six or eight weeks that I've been really knuckling down to this research, I've just been so immersed in English rugby league and English culture that I kind of feel a bit sad to be, you know, diving back in to the mess we created here. I've really, really enjoyed these three episodes. Like Out of all the ones you've done, there's so many good ones, but these ones are yeah, really interesting to me. I've always been a fan of the English game, and judging by the increase in our English listeners, I think it's resonated with the English people too. So if you keep sharing it with your friends over there, that'd be great. Yeah, it has been really cool to engage with more and more English listeners, so please keep that coming. And I don't want to make out as if we're never going to discuss English football again, because obviously it's a big part of the story, and you'll hear a lot more about what was happening in England as our story goes along, just maybe not in such a concentrated format as we've had in these three episodes. We had quite a few English players in the rest of the world team, so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, uh, of course, the long-awaited World Club Challenge when that comes up. (laughs) Um, But let's just get to the business at hand. And to set up this episode, this is ground that we have covered previously. If you remember back to our ARL isolated chapter, that told the story of the English and New Zealand board signing with Super League. But when we talked about it then, it was very much in relation to what was happening following April Fool's Day here, and particularly how it affected the ARL. We didn't really spend too much time looking at the impact that it would have on English football, which was sizable. So what we're going to look at in this episode is the decision to take the money from News Limited and the fallout that that created. So let's just start with a bit of a recap. So basically, April Fool's Day happens here. By the Wednesday morning, our old friend David Smith was in London to meet with Morris Lindsay with an offer. And so the next day on Thursday the 5th, there was actually a previously scheduled Rugby League Council meeting that discussed, you know, some things that are going to have ramifications for Super League, such as summer rugby, but the Murdoch approach was not a part of this meeting. And so it was during that meeting that Morris Lindsay received a phone call and a meeting of club chairman was planned for the weekend. So the interesting thing about that is it's kind of what we talked about in the ARL Isolated 
chapter where by Thursday night on the footy show here, it was announced that England had signed with uh, News Limited. But of course, that hadn't happened by that point. So they made an offer. And I guess the thinking was that the offer was too good to refuse and that, (laughs) you know, they were effectively signed. So when you're broke and someone offers you £75 million, you don't have many options, do you? I mean, wouldn't they love that today? (laughs) So basically, before that general council meeting, the first division chairman met in Huddersfield, you know, the day before and effectively made the decision then. And then that was ratified the next day with a 32-0 vote. And that also included non-league clubs. Uh, The only team to not vote was our old friends at Chorley, who were abstainers. So... (laughs) Have you survived the hate mail from Chorley? (laughs) I'm predicting it coming from another uh, northern town by the end of this episode. So... Um, hopefully that'll be a smoke screen and get Chorley off our case. I remember when this happened when they signed England. It seemed to happen over here in the papers like overnight. So the whole of England signed a Super League and I was thinking, geez, that was quick. Yeah. I was thinking, why couldn't it happen over here like that? Yeah, yeah. It just goes back to that idea that I think in my interview with Tony Collins, he mentioned that the previous TV deal they negotiated was for two and a half million pounds. And now two years later, they're getting a 75 million pound offer. And 25 years later, they're getting uh, two Super Supremes and a garlic bread. (laughs) So really, there was little choice. But the interesting thing from the Australian side is what we talked about when we covered it the first time with Ken Arthurson making an appeal to Morris Lindsay and saying, like, please, like, just hold out. Let me speak to you. Don't make a decision yet. And then Lindsay put that to the meeting and Leeds chairman Ron Tiemann said, we should thank Mr. Arthurson for his concern. But let's ask ourselves, what would he do if the position was reversed? Very good point. I mean, also the perceived arrogance and contempt that the international game has been held in by Australia come back to bite them on this occasion. Yeah, I mean, there's not a small amount of passive aggression in that response from (laughs) Tiemann. And he's so right. What would he do if the position was reversed? Like how far down the list of priorities would the plight of English football be? if roles were reversed? Like, would it even be on Arthurson's list of priorities at all? Yeah. And basically, Morris Lindsay's response to Arthurson was, I read your facts out, the vote's just been taken. It's 75 million. And that was basically the final word. You know, what can we do? It's 75 million. We have absolutely no choice but to accept it and move on. Let me ask you this. If they didn't take that then, what do you think the game would be over there now? It's almost not even worth asking because there was just no chance of them not accepting it. And the original offer isn't, of course, what they ended up getting. So as we'll get into it, it ended up being an £87 million deal. And all the things that were proposed at that first meeting, which we're going to get into, the mergers, they ended up not happening. So I think, A, there was just no chance of it not being accepted, and B, that money didn't end up reshaping the game the way it could have. So maybe it's a scenario where the game kind of sputters along and is in a similar place now, but didn't experience any peaks or troughs along the way. It was just a pretty flat path to mediocrity. Because it kind of felt um, new and exciting again for the first few years, at least, yeah. when they were super Yeah, late. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think ultimately... 
English Rugby League is probably in a similar similar position, just not having that like real uptick, you know, along the way. But uh, so that's getting way ahead. Let's talk about what they had agreed to, what that meeting put into place. So basically, it was to go into a two division system with a fourteen team Super League. This was to include a series of mergers and a couple of new clubs. So the original plan was that six existing clubs would be Wigan, St. Helens, London, Halifax, Bradford, and Leeds. They would be joined by two French teams at Paris and Toulouse, and then a number of mergers. And we're going to have some lengthy merger discussion in this episode, so I won't break down those mergers just yet. I can see a red flag straight away. They've done the old uh, Australian expansion of four teams in 95 when they said two French teams. Start with one. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, unlike Australia, the two French team thing fell apart within weeks. So (laughs) they did start with one anyway. Uh, (laughs) And even that was probably flying a bit too close to the sun, the way the Paris Saint-Germain experience played itself out. And then I guess the biggest change was the switch to to a summer league. So that was a pretty radical change to the game that in the end, there wasn't too much controversy over such a major change. And I guess that is part because of all the other revolutionary things that were being proposed. But also, I mean, what person in their right mind wouldn't rather sit there in 20 degree weather than minus 20 <laughs> snow? Well, <laughs> there actually were a few people. I'll leave you to, to judge whether they were in their right minds or not, but we, we will discuss that a bit later. But the other keen thing to note at this point was the fact that it was also going to take out promotion and relegation for the first two years, at least. And that led to the first real discontent about what was happening. Uh, and that was with a team... When I interviewed Tony Collins, he pronounced it keekly, but I feel like I can't say it properly with my Australian accent. So I'm going to say keely with the understanding that I know that is wrong, but uh, please don't bombard me with emails about it. I've been saying keely for 30 years. Yeah, so have I. So it's a bit hard to now just change course and say keekly. I believe a few of the uh, keekly cougar boys were friends with the Gallagher brothers. Oh, is that right? That's what I read back in the 90s. That's actually really interesting because Keeley at that time, there was a real movement behind them. It was known as Cougar Mania. So <laughs> they had, um, it was kind of Super League before Super League, what they were doing. So they were putting on, you know, entertainment during the matches, having like American style announcements and rev ups and all that sort of thing. And so they actually took off as a really like buzzy kind of, team and you know they'd gone from averaging crowds under a thousand a few years ago to getting like five thousand at games in the second division and then they had also spent money to get good players and had really taken strides on field to the point that they would have been the team that were promoted into the top division and that was scrapped because of the new things coming in so this was the first furor with Keeley denied their place in the top flight I've been thinking after the first two episodes, the English and UK obsessment with promotion and relegation, it's like the ultimate gamble where people want their clubs to be like on the brink and heart attack. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so foreign to us. I know, it really is. And then when you think about it, all the things you have to do 
you either overspend in the hope of making it to the top division. And if that works out, you've then got to also overspend to get enough good players to be able to compete. Yeah. So what Keeley did was to sign Daryl Powell to a £135,000 contract. They like just announced that signing. And then like it was something like a week later, the news offer comes in and suddenly they were going to be stuck in the second division. Well, it's another goalpost shift, isn't it? I mean, they've got a right to be annoyed. (laughs) Yeah, no, they've got a total right to be annoyed. But there were also some legitimate questions from the league. So they were worried about their ability to sustain what they'd been doing in the Cougamania era. And their coach, Peter Rowe, had said, they were hard done by, there's no doubt about it, but there was still another side to it. They overspent massively in in an attempt to get into the top division and were full-time in 94-95. When the RFL looked at their books, they weren't happy with what they saw and to go a stage further, they'd still have to treble their wage bill. So there were like legitimate concerns about whether they were going to be able to hang with the big boys if they did go up. I don't think they're alone, but... um, Yeah, yeah. It's just astonishing, like the... English rugby league, like the goalposts are a perpetual motion machine. They just never stop changing them. Yeah, it goes back to the Chorley experience in part two. You know, they were told to formulate a five-year plan and then four years into that plan, everything changes again. Like, how can you operate in in that environment? (laughs) But the other side of the Keeley thing I wanted to discuss was there was a, a publication in response to the mergers called Merging on the Ridiculous, which we're going to discuss at length. And someone in that wrote this impassioned plea for how it was wrong and Keeley had earned their right to Super League. I'm just going to read the statement. The transport systems to the town are not good. The road from Bradford via Bingley is a nightmare, and the town is surrounded by beautiful but sparsely populated countryside. This won't attract Murdoch. He needs loads of people to match his loads of money. <laughs> Mergers from hell like that between Hull and KR, teams whose recent records are poor compared with Keeley's, will always be preferred. Hull is a city with a port, a railway line. Measured in terms which attract the communications industry, Keeley is nothing. Its infrastructure has nothing to offer. It's like, well, you're not really selling it. <laughs> Sinking the slipper on Keeley. <laughs> I actually spent an afternoon in Keeley a few years ago, and my initial assessment wasn't this town is crying out for a Super League team. <laughs> And that's not to disparage Keeley. I'm just saying that if you're moving in a new direction and trying to reshape the game, well, that is necessarily going to cause some thinking about the teams that should be in this division and whether the promotion and relegation system that had worked in the past is compatible with that. I think the most amazing thing is our English listenership's increasing with you insulting every town <laughs> north of Middlesbrough. please don't take this personally i actually i was staying in one of those beautiful but sparsely populated villages in the countryside just (laughs) out of keely and it was delightful like i loved the experience yeah so nothing but love for our northern (laughs) english listeners and and their beautiful towns don't open up any letters from chorley though it's all gonna say (laughs) and so basically uh keely served a writ on the league and... Papering Chapeltown Road's walls with writs. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was kind of a spark for everything starting to fall 
apart in the next few days. Because the decision to move to a two-tier system would also have some flow-on effects for teams at the bottom end of the table. So uh, our old friends at Chorley were again left out. So moving to a two-tier structure kept them on the outside and missing out on the News Limited windfall. And then even more damaging was all the mergers that were going on. So let's talk a bit more about those mergers now. So there were six mergers proposed. I'm just going to read you the teams involved and the new names of those mergers. So you had Calder, which was a merger of Castleford, Featherston and Wakefield Trinity. Cheshire, Warrington and Widnes. Cumbria, Barrow, Carlisle, Whitehaven and Workington. A Humberside merger of Hull and Hull KR. Manchester, which was to be Oldham and Salford. And South Yorkshire, uh, which was to comprise Doncaster and Sheffield. Well, straight away I'm thinking of a Manly Norse merger when I hear Hull and Hull KR. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that is the one. I've got a, a quote about that. So this was also from Merging on the Ridiculous. If someone came and told me that the Pope and Ian Paisley had decided that Glasgow Rangers and Glasgow Celtic should merge, I would have been no more surprised than I was when I learnt that Hull and Hull KR were to be joined in unholy wedlock. (laughs) It's one of those things that sounds logical from the outside, but to anyone on the inside, there couldn't be anything more illogical. I was guilty of this at the time, just going like, why can't they just merge me and very flippant about it? But you're so yeah. right. Like, rugby league people, you spend your whole life irrationally hating another club. You just can't change it. Like, I think the Celtic and Rangers is a good example because people probably know a bit more about that rivalry. And that doesn't make logical sense because of what we know about the culture and the history of those two clubs. That rivalry is everything that people know of Scottish football. So maybe it's not to the same extent in Hull and Hull KR, but when you have this in-city rivalry, the only one that the game has, it's kind of foolish economically to just sacrifice that rivalry. Well, it's exactly the same as uh, Souths and Easts here. Yeah. What a great rivalry, but also how ridiculous to have two teams six Ks apart, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what can you do? What's the answer? And when both teams are successful, there's nothing better. It's just when, if Souths ever go to a long period of decline, like, and, you know, East as well in, for much of the 80s were, were a nothing team. When you have that happening for 20 or 30 years, then it looks really foolish. When both teams are, are firing, suddenly that's like match the round anytime they play and you're getting good crowds, especially when they're meeting in semifinals, then it's great again. Actually, it's not that ridiculous how and whole KR because, you know, Brooklyn V, then Knicks or whatever. Yeah. In Sydney, you got 11, 11 other teams at the time. So. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's just more when you think about, oh, yeah, well, let's make rugby league in England a national competition. So we'll have London. Let's get a team in Birmingham. Uh, you know, Salford can become Manchester. We'll get a Liverpool team. Newcastle, they're back. Do we need two whole teams? Let's just go with one whole team. Like that, that is the logical move, but it's not how the game works and it's not something that would work. And then also the name they were proposing, Humberside. Like, what does that mean to anybody who, you know, doesn't live in Hull? If you're a Smiths fan, it means something. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, to the greater public. Unfortunately, the lyric is provincial towns you jog around. 
Probably not a good advertisement. Uh, and speaking of which, a four-way merger to make the Cumbrian team. Think about that. And then even the Calder merger, which again, like what's Calder? Like what does that mean? Um, but Castleford, Featherston, Wakefield, Trinity, to just merge these fan bases that have traditionally like hated each other. It's close geographical rivalry and just think everyone will just accept it. Yeah. But as you remember, the vote was 32 nil. Like they voted in favour of these mergers only to have within days all these second thoughts and Leeds chairman Alf Davies saying that the league was holding a gun to their heads and telling them vote in favour of these or you're out. The great British rugby league journalist Dave Hadfield, his quote in Tony Collins's book, I think, sums it up nicely. I've rarely met as dazed a collection of individuals in my life as the chairman who were hit over the head by the promise of £77 million a couple of weeks ago. I believe they would have agreed to anything. Indeed, several of them voted for things with which it later emerged they profoundly disagreed. Well, it's the same as the Australian mergers. It's like, do you want to survive in some way or die? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, when that initial offer came in, it was like, we've got all this money. There's a big share for you guys, but you know, these are the conditions. It's either that or you miss out completely and you know, we go ahead with it anyway. Well, I mean, it's not quite as bad as Australia because the English hardcore fans, they'll watch him in second division, semi-amateur or whatever the, you know, the club ends up if they stand alone. In Australia, that would never happen. So You say that, and yes, that's true to an extent, but you're talking about like, you know, the second division games. Like It was rare that a team would average over 1,000 in the second division. You know, it, it did make everything much smaller. And whether the clubs who were used to operating on a certain level, whether they could survive such a diminished status, whether the fans would like support in the same extent that they had, I think that is a genuine question. I don't know that we can assume that they just would have. Well, you either believe in Cougamani or you don't. (laughs) (laughs) It was in this period that you're seeing some of that self-interest from clubs coming to the fore so one of the criticisms of mick o'neill who was the keely boss was the perception that i'm in favor if i can be in and it seemed like that was kind of like across the board like a common sentiment well this is wrong but oh you're letting me in yeah no no i mean it's i think there's a lot of merit to these proposals you know there's not too many rugby league bosses that would fall on their sword for the club are there? no a pitch of bullfrog like the ultimate club man as long as he's running it you know Yeah, yeah. So this was the start of it. And remember, this is all just days, like just literally days from the original announcement. It's all falling apart. So the outcry was coming from everywhere. So you're getting former greats uh, in Australia, the likes of Tommy Bishop and Mal Reilly speaking out against it, really saying that I thought about going to Super League for as long as it would take to think about jumping into a river full of crocodiles. And he was big on the notion that English Rugby League had sold out. But again, like, it's hard to see what options they have. And I mean, the same's probably true of the fans. They were the ones that really got the outcry built up and started to make the clubs have second thoughts. So the fans mobilized almost instantly. And I guess the epicenter of it was in that Calder region 
with the Featherston fans, the Wakefield and Castleford fans. So they, you know, protested outside games and quite quickly, you've heard me mention this merging on the ridiculous book, which I've got to thank so much. Uh, the Twitter account, SSR Almanac. Great follow. He's a South Sky. Yeah, great follow. Please be following him at SSR Almanac. I should have got his actual name before doing this, but I'm so, 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 so grateful to him. I'd heard about merging on the ridiculous for the past couple of years and I kept seeing it referenced, but I hadn't managed to track down a copy. And he got in touch with us and happened to have a copy and sent it to us. So awesome read. Yeah, such a good read. And it's just made such a big difference to my understanding of the fan sentiment. So um, <laughs> eternally grateful. And if anyone else can track down a copy, I would highly recommend it as a window into British rugby league in this time. Can we talk about the title, please? I mean, <laughs> this is the result of 50 years of um, Mirror and Sun headlines. Right? It's up there with Freddie Star ate my hamster, but a son. <laughs> so there was the announcement that they'd signed on the 8th of April. Fans called a meeting on the 10th and Merging on the Ridiculous was published a week later. So it was so fast. Published? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, and it started with those fans who were directly affected. So Castleford and Featherstone. That was, I think, the first meeting was fans of those three clubs meeting together to discuss it. But it soon became a wider movement. So fans affected by other mergers, as well as fans from clubs like Bradford, who their team was safe, but they could still see what was happening and weren't happy with it. And so what Merging on the Ridiculous did was to just give all these fans a voice. It was basically all anonymous accounts. Like there were no names attributed to the fans writing. And it's kind of like zine format, you'd say almost, as it would tell you of being published in a week. It's like, you know, not like a full on book. It's about 60 odd pages and just like little accounts from different fans. But interestingly, it starts with uh, facts from Ken Arthurson. So I think he'd been asked to provide you know something for it and he duly did so it's quite telling that his contribution was remember this if super league becomes a reality it will effectively mean not just the end of kangaroo tours but also tours of australia by the british lions i know english fans love international football and the ashes and all the rest of it but like i don't think that was their pressing concern right in this instant <laughs> well that just says it all doesn't it yeah australian arrogance yeah, yeah. You aren't going to have a club to support, but what about the kangaroos? <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like vindictive about that from Arco, but I think it's just telling of how blind Australian Rugby League was to England. And of course, we remain that way today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but funnily enough, the only other named contributor emerging on the ridiculous is David Oxley, who... Uh, you heard us discuss David Oxley in the earlier parts of this chapter. He was the British football boss who took over after Bill Fallowfield in 1975. His contribution, it seemed to be quite ambivalent because he, he'd actually said, few would deny that a radical rationalisation of our club structure is overdue. The Murdoch millions not only made this possible, they rendered it inevitable. So it's kind of supporting the idea. So going against the rest of the publication, but his prose in his statement is just so beautiful that I just have to read it. 
Change in our lives cannot always be managed through genteel evolution. Sometimes it comes suddenly, radical, brutal, cataclysmic, giving rise to feelings which run raw, anger, fear, bitterness, sorrow, pain. Such emotions will be understood by all who care deeply about the great game, including those who in their time have to make tough decisions about its future. Yet there are other emotions still stronger and longer lasting which we all share, the love, commitment, resilience and devotion that gave life to clubs, which have pumped the lifeblood of small northern towns, nurtured them and sustained them, in many cases for a hundred years or more. Such passions transcend time. The externals might change, but the essence is eternal. Wow. Yeah, sets it up beautifully as to what these teams mean to their communities. But I think like the anger, fear, bitterness are three of the four pillars of the rugby league fan, the, the other being yeah. spite. <laughs> it's what we all have. Yeah, no, it, it really got to the heart of it, didn't it? And the rest of the merging on the ridiculous is definitely filled with those four pillars. So Morris Lindsay, probably predictably, was uh, one of the chief villains characterized in merging on the ridiculous. One account said, to my way of thinking, at the very least, Mr. Lindsay and the rest of the chairman of the clubs are guilty of a betrayal no less seriousness than Judas Iscariot at the Last Supper. (laughs) Pretty serious. (laughs) But most of the book was devoted to the mergers. This was the driving force of the fan outrage. You saw at one of the protests at the game, a banner saying, Fev is Fev, Cass is Cass, stick your merger up your ass. (laughs) So, So that kind of represented the feelings quite nicely. It was rival fans coming together to protest these mergers with some quite strong language and some, you know, pretty reasonable arguments, you know. So one of those came down to the name, so the Calder thing. What is Calder to the people of Featherstone but a river that runs somewhere to the side of Normanton, as remote as the Ganges or Volga? What a daft name. (laughs) Remote as the Ganges. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing about it. There are all these righteous protests and the mergers were poorly planned. How can you seriously just have a meeting and decide on this there and then. Yeah. To do that in such a short amount of time is madness and it was never going to work. But at the same time, in the Rugby League yearbook of that year, when discussing the plan mergers, the writers of that yearbook said there seemed to be a general acceptance that something had to be done to save the game and the Super League was right in principle. It's exactly the same as Australia. It's like they could have had... 10 years of discussions got nowhere about mergers, so they might as well just do it like a band-aid off in one go. <laughs> yeah, and the thing about it is all this, something had to be done to save the game, Super League was right in principle. Well, what is the outcome of that other than we'll take your money as long as I can still watch my team from a small village play first division football in front of 3,000 people every week? Exactly the same as Australia, not my team. Yeah. So I do sympathise with the fans, and I think these mergers were not the right way of doing things. But it's kind of like when people criticise the criteria in the NRL era. It's like, okay, well, what criteria would you have accepted for your team to be excluded? (laughs) You know, is there an answer to that? Is there a set of guidelines that could have been put in that your team failed to meet that would see you go, fair cop, we didn't make it, you know, like... Look, I mean, you're dead right. They've rushed into it. They've changed the goalposts. They've done all that. 
so they're in the wrong. But what alternative have they got? There's no right answer. And as you said, it's easy to say, well, if they kind of sit in a room and try to work something out, it will take 10 years and, and nothing will happen at the end of that anyway. So sometimes that radical change is needed, but it's a hard one to get over the line in rugby league. There was also an idea that it was like the big clubs that were being looked after. So I think Morris Lindsay really had an Arco problem in that he'd come from Wigan, had all that success there, took over as league boss and was never going to shape the perception that he was going to look after Wigan first. If you're a first division club getting 2,000 people there and then you see a 400,000 pound transfer fee for you know, someone, you're yeah. like, oh God. Yeah. And part of this also goes into the way certain northern towns were able to regenerate post-Thatcher where some weren't. So, you know, Wigan was a town that did a lot better than some of the mining towns in Yorkshire. And our patrons by now will have listened to my interview with British Labour historian Anthony Broxton. And he talked about the fact that the hatred of Rupert Murdoch, which was a really strong sentiment in Merging on the Ridiculous, that wasn't across the board. So yes, it was true in the Yorkshire towns that during the mining strike in the 80s, there were real grievances about the way that the Murdoch press had covered the strikes, but that antipathy wasn't necessarily shared in some of the bigger towns that were able to regenerate after Thatcher. He wasn't voted man of the year in uh, Liverpool. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. He did give the notable exception of Liverpool. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But I wonder if that played a part in this antipathy towards Wigan. You know, the fact that it was this guy, Morris Lindsay, who had access to all these resources and managed to buy everyone to win everything, then goes on to take over the league, then, in their view, sells them out, forces them into these mergers. He's coming from the same place where, you know, they were able to escape the financial hardship and the downturn that, you know, these Yorkshire villages were still stuck in. How bad is the north of England going when Wigan's envied? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I mean, that leads to the idea of class and how this plays into it. Uh, and again, my chat with Anthony was really useful to me in formulating my ideas on this. But it's funny because when we talked about Aussies for the ARL, I kind of like ridicule them and don't take it seriously because like, I feel like I know these people. Yeah. You have to remember that Aussies for the ARL were protesting against a second team, like their team was fine. It, w it wasn't like their existence was being threatened. They were using one of the four pillars, spite, to get rid of <laughs> <laughs> But from the English side, when I sit, you know, read Merging on the Ridiculous and, and seeing all the protests and all of that, I kind of see them as tragic heroes. Like I know them as characters in like Brassed Off and The Full Monty. So I think it's easy to get swept up in the kind of romantic side of things. I think that's really got to you, that side of things. First of all, Full Monty is one of the unfunniest movies of all time. But um, this whole romanticizing working classism, it's, um, it's like Noel Gallagher had a quote, you know, he's working class, but like he doesn't wear it as a badge of honor. He wants to improve his life sort of thing. It's also undercut by the fact that he says those things while sitting on a literal throne. <laughs> Live Forever documentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True, true, true. 
But like, I think the romanticism can be taken out of this for rugby league purposes. It's like it should have been. The romanticism can be taken out and should be, and it's what I've tried to do. But you just can't divorce it from the political situation. Like yeah. all throughout Merging on the Ridiculous, there's these constant evocations of the miners' strikes. And I guess the most indicative quote was, they've taken our jobs, now they want to take our leisure. It's heartbreaking. And so this is, you know, coming like 10 years after the miners' strikes and all these like northern towns like lost their main industry and in many cases didn't have the same opportunity to regenerate as, you know, bigger towns were. So these were like fresh scars. But, uh, Morris Lindsay's way worse than Arthurson though because Wigan were 10 times the glamour club that Manly was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least with Manly you had other clubs with similar means, able to kind of keep them in check. Mm. But then there is this extra Rupert Murdoch wrinkle. So throughout the mining strike era, he basically mobilised the Sun to be this, you know, mouthpiece for the Conservative government, calling the miners the enemy within. So these were like, as I said, really fresh scars. And the fact that it's Murdoch again coming in at this point, and he's the one that is threatening to take away their rugby league team. Like, I know we're trying to take the romanticism out of it, but you're living in Featherston, you've lost your job, and now 10 years later, the same person that called you an enemy for your resistance to that is now taking away your rugby league team. Like, there was this great line in Merging on the Ridiculous talking about Featherston, and and he said, you know, it's rugby league folklore that Anytime the Rovers needed another player, all the club had to do was shout down the shaft of Acton Hall Colliery and up popped another international in the making. <laughs> <laughs> and like that was spoken of in romantic terms. And this is where you have to take the romanticism out of it because like that wasn't going to be happening anymore. And even before the pit closures, the game was moving in a different direction and that was no longer going to be the case. But I think this illustrates like a key difference between England and Australia. Like I think in English rugby league, it is still so bound to the community. Like Gary Schofield in his book said, rugby league remains intimately linked to the lives of the communities in which it's played to a degree found in no other sport. Now, I don't know how true that is the degree found in no other sport, but it's certainly nowhere near the case here in Australia. Well, in our interview with Mel Hoffman, she was so charmed by the people in England, but the old ladies coming up in the supermarket saying, all right, Ryan, you've got Huddersfield this weekend. Like the players were sort of owned by the community in a nice way, you know what I mean? She, and she yeah. loved it. Yeah. And I mean, here, like, you can hate the word all you want, but rugby league teams here are brands and they're not geographically bound like to the same extent. I mean, there's a couple of exceptions to that, you could argue. But, like, we can at least talk about a relocation here. I know we get plenty of pushback anytime we suggest moving the Sharks to Perth or whatever else you want to talk about, but you can at least suggest it. It's at least a reasonable idea that can be debated. But, like, the idea of Featherston moving to Birmingham, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And then I I think, like, Lindsay actually makes some compelling cases for mergers or at least for the idea that things need to change. In Inside Out, the Roy Masters book, he said, We have rugby league clubs which grew up as a recreational pursuit in the old industrial times, which meant you played the team across the park. Then you both became professional clubs, and when the interest disappeared, you both were looking for the same customer. 
a future of too many clubs can't work. Mm. And it's like, yeah, the situation has changed. The, the conditions for which your club emerged have changed. And now there's two teams chasing the same dollar. But that didn't matter when it was a pub team and a mining team and it was a recreational activity. If it becomes a professional thing, well, why would the same structure work? Yeah, of course. But the other interesting difference in terms of like rugby league's ties to its communities in England is the way that the politicians agitated on behalf of those communities as well. So it was actually debated in British Parliament what was happening with Super League. So the Wakefield MP David Hinchcliffe said, why should a battle between two Australian media magnets result in my constituents losing something very important, which we've had for 122 years, Wakefield Trinity Rugby League Football Club? Why should a power struggle on the other side of the world mean that I should lose the team that I've supported through thick and thin since I was a small child? <laughs> me, me, me. It's another guy leaving out Optus and Jeff Cousins out of the equation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can say that, well, that's not how the world works, but you can understand a fan going like, this has nothing to do with me. An Australian pay TV war is now resulting in me losing my team. Like, I've, I think that's a, a reasonable grievance to hold. It is, but it's also reasonable for Morris Lindsay to say, we're all going to die in a minute. This 75 yeah. million pounds is going to keep us alive for another 50 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's, it was just really striking the way that here in Australia, for the most part, the politicians largely stayed out of it. Except for Richo. Well, he wasn't a politician at that point. He never was, in my view. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, Richo's the classic example, like, you know, Labor power broker who was forming close links with media magnets and, you know, moving away from like trade unions and, and et cetera. That shift that happened, Richo was a key part of. And yeah. I think it kind of tells you something about Australian politics in the 90s that no one was really willing to go too far out on a limb in supporting one side or criticizing another side. Yeah. But like to me, this whole thing is way different because Murdoch's here pillaging a game, stealing the game from the people. Over there, he's putting an offer to them and they're signing it. Yeah, and I think that is a key thing to understand in this is that there was never going to be a takeover of the league in what news were offering to England. It was strictly a payment for pay TV rights to get rugby league on Sky in England and the RFL would get that £87 million as the final offer worked out without News Limited running the competition. And I mean, this is a pretty key piece of evidence to suggest that it really was just about fucking the ARL. <laughs> you know, like there was no long-term concern for English rugby league. It was like, this is really going to stuff the ARL in the short term, so let's do it. It did get, uh, as far as helping the game, the first few years of Sky, it really did give it a good profile. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of argument on both sides of that equation. But regardless, it, <laughs> there's just something kind of a, a bit tragic about it, that what was like this, you know, huge injection of cash and something that was going to reshape and, and save the game in England was just kind of brought out of Murdoch's back pocket to help his little side bet in Australia. <laughs> it's very tragic. Beginning to think he's not that nice a bloke. <laughs> but so it's staggering how quickly it all fell apart. So as all this fan agitation was going on, mergers were already starting to fall apart. So 
The deal was announced on the 8th of April. By the 12th of April, the Sheffield and Doncaster merger had been called off. Two days later, Cheshire was gone. Bradford and Halifax had threatened mergers. Then they abandoned talks. But tell me this. I mean, how good would it have been to have the Cheshire Cats running around in Civil League? (laughs) That would have been cool. But So that one fell apart because the second French team pulled out. So Toulouse pulled out, meaning that, you know, they needed another team. So Witness and Warrington then, you know, went back to standing alone. And then by the end of the month, they basically all either been formally ruled out or they just postponed talks and for now was sticking with going it alone. So that meant that on the 30th of April, a new meeting was called to vote on a revised financial package. This was that £87 million and a new restructure with no mergers. So it was going to now be a three-division league with a 12-team Super League, an 11-team Division One, and a 10-team Division Two. So this caused uh, Witness to launch legal action against the league because they had seemingly secured their Super League place when the merger with Warrington was called off. But the new vote that made it a 12-division top flight meant that they were going to be excluded. (laughs) But they ended up losing that legal case because they were the only ones to vote against it. So it was a 32-to-1 vote. And the courts ruled that, therefore, it was the wishes of the league and the rest of the clubs that this was going to be the structure. So witness were just going to have to deal with it. The amount of court cases. But it was good news for Chorley. They managed to grab one of those second division spots. So, you know, it had been a hard couple of years for Chorley. So I was really happy to see them get that over the <laughs> line. Try and backtrack now, mate. <laughs> uh, but it also meant that the Cardiff team were going to be scrapped and they were going to go back to a one-up, one-down relegation system. So after all that, after all this talk of, you know, revolutionary change and all these mergers, you were left with a Super League of Bradford, Castleford, Halifax, Leeds, London, Oldham, Paris, St. Helens, Sheffield, Warrington, Wigan, and Workington. See, to me, Cardiff is a much better idea than, say, Workington. Yeah, yeah. Major metropolitan city. But we got to get that Cumbrian presence. (laughs) So after all that, we were left with a top division looking very similar to what had already, you know, been in place with the noticeable exception of Paris. uh, And it was good that London were doing well at that point, but it was maybe not so super as you might imagine. But now we're just going to break with the chronology slightly to go back to the ARL's counterattack. And as you'll remember, they launched a raid on England in the wake of the announcement. And the plan was to snatch up all of the top players. So, you know, very similar to what Super League had done in Australia, but they were going to come in, grab all the best players, sign them to ARL loyalty deals. And that was going to uh, really hamper News Limited's efforts in England. I can't believe any of them signed for the ARL English players. To me, it's insane. It all is very strange. Um, So the ARL had a a fighting fund of about $7 million is the figure that's been put forward. And we've covered this before, but like the ARL are such massive hypocrites in this instance. Like They care as little about English Rugby League as they're accusing News Limited of. All the talk at the time of their strategy, there was nothing about the glory of English football or even like the idea of a special relationship between the two countries. 
It was just openly spoken as a deliberate destabilizing <laughs> tactic. I had to translate the kangaroo to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so what it did do was force the RFL into instituting a, a loyalty payment style system for some of the top players. So um, Martin Afire was a key recipient of this. And basically the RFL were giving clubs money to give to certain players to ensure their loyalty. This led to some noses out of joint with Sean Edwards and Gary Schofield not uh, getting money. Schofield felt snubbed because uh, he hadn't received any money, but the league said, well, it was up to Leeds to put his name forward, and they hadn't done that. They named three different players. Interestingly, two of those players were Ellery Hanley and Craig Innes, who were three who did sign with the ARL. So I'm not sure if Schofield actually got their money after they left. I'm sure he did, if we know Gary. (laughs) But it's hard to characterize the ARL's effort as anything but a colossal failure. So of this raid, they managed to sign Jonathan Davies to a $200,000 bonus with a stipulation that he doesn't play for Super League teams. They didn't say anything about signing with Rugby Union, which he duly did. So <laughs> it was a nice little... <laughs> I remember I remember being disgusted at the time. So yeah, so he cashed a $200,000 loyalty check uh, and then, then went and played for Rugby Union. Farcical. They signed Jason Robinson, Martin Hall and Gary Connolly from Wigan, uh, but those deals weren't to start until after their Wigan contracts expired. So they played out their contracts until, you know, 1998. So the war was already settled in Australia. None of those players ever going on to play in the ARL or NRL. So the plan was for them to play in Aussie clubs. Yeah. So these people were going to move halfway across the world for a couple of hundred thousand dollars when they could just sign with Super League for probably almost as much. Yeah. It's weird. And yeah, you're right, it is weird. So they had to also look at players who were already in Australia. So uh, Kevin Ellis, who was uh, an English player playing in Cowboys reserve grade, they signed him to a $150,000 sign-on with a $150,000 a year contract uh, that saw him finish on the reserves bench for Gold Coast Reserves. (laughs) I mean, that's got to be up there with Edmund, right? Yeah, they got Gary Price from Featherston for $200,000. He also found himself a specialist bench warmer for South's reserves. This is cash incineration that makes normal rugby league cash incineration blush. I know. This is like a worse strategy than any like individual contract you can think of. Um, so Lee Jackson, Ellery Hanley and Craig Innes were the only players who actually regularly played in the ARL after the signing. And Innes was the only one who was really like a factor on field. Like he was good for Manly, but then ended up going back to Union after 97 anyway. So, but I just wanted to briefly touch on the Ellery Hanley experience because it's so funny to me. Like he was my footballing hero from 88. And, he, you know, he came back and played two years for the Tigers in 96 and 97. And I've just got zero memory of watching him at all in this time. Yeah, me too. It's because of how low the Tigers were and how unappealing those low-level ARL games were. Yeah. And this is cash incineration to an extreme. So he was offered a a $600,000 a year deal for two years. How old was he? He was 34. Oh, my God. And, you know, he'd largely gone into, like, the, you know, non-playing period of his career. So he was 
England coach and, and then he ended up leaving that so he could sign with the ARL. I mean, he's worth paying something just because of the name and the legendary status and, and name recognition in Australia as well, but 600000 for a 34-year-old. Yeah, exactly. And when, and when you consider his past and, you know, soon to be again teammate Paul Sirinan, not that far removed from his third kangaroo tour, was offered a $75,000 loyalty bonus with no upgraded contract. No wonder he was filthy. Yeah. So the ARL didn't want Hanley to go to a team like Manly or East. And, you know, Jeff Muller and his no-has-been policy aside, there wasn't that much interest in Ellery Hanley, you know, from many other clubs. So Balmain was the pick for those sentimental reasons. But it did lead to a bit of an upset Gary Jack, who had returned to the Tigers in 1995. And, you know, with Ellery coming in, it was, you know, he was deemed to be surplus of requirements and didn't play for them in 1996. In the press, there was talk of, you know, oh, well, you know, Gary Jack is deemed over the hill, but Ellery Hanley can play. They were both 34. And it's like, you feel for Gary Jack, but like, do you want two 34-year-olds in the team? (laughs) Yeah, um, if it comes down between the two of them, one's a political pawn to destabilise the English game. Yeah, it did lead to Benny Elias chiming in, making the very astute point, can you justify spending half a million plus on a 34-year-old who hasn't played for a year? (laughs) It's a good question. I don't know if if you can. Uh, His follow-up was less astute. I think Balmain would have been a lot better off getting me to play again. Or Gary Jack or Steve Roach. I'm really dumbfounded. <laughs> it's funny when you see like the early renter quote careers taking off, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so that was basically the extent of the ARL's raid. So they got Ellery Hanley to come for two years and didn't get much else besides. So let's just go back to those big changes that were happening in the English game. And I guess the biggest of all was the switch to a summer season. This was something that had been talked about for a while, so there was a first real mention of it in 1979. That was quickly shut down by league boss David Oxley, but over the decade there was growing support for the idea. And as I said, this was on the agenda for discussion at that council meeting in April 1995, where Morris Lindsay first revealed the News Limited approach. So it was a report that had been put together to be discussed at this meeting. So it outlines seven main advantages of a summer season, being climate, travel, marketing opportunities, groundskeeping, less competition from soccer and rugby union. That's the main one. Yeah. Greater sponsorship opportunities, as well as the ability to restructure the international season. Did these sponsors come to fruition? (laughs) Well, I guess in the short term they did, and, and this is what we saw with the first few years of Super League, like, and as we discussed in our conversation with Mike Mehal Wood, summer rugby was seen as cool, and this, you know, it was expansive. And I think in the early days, you did see those sponsorship opportunities. John Smith's bitter, yeah, and you know, so that started to fade away now. But in the short term, yes, I think it was a winner. There were arguments against it. Again, Ken Arthurson saying. I wonder why you'd even think of doing that. It would mean the end of Kangaroo and British Lions tours as we know them. (laughs) This bloke has got a one-track mind. (laughs) And it's funny because in my interview with, with Tony Collins, he said that 
summer rugby was an idea whose time had come. And yeah, like that's probably true. But then you had staunch resistance from teams like Leeds, who, you know, as Dave Hadfield put it, perhaps the strangest though was the sudden conversion of Leeds to the idea of Summer League. Dead against it, always have been. Dead against any revamp that involves Summer League, had to be. So firmly, in fact, that they were muttering about an injunction to stop any immediate move to bring it in. So you wonder that without this impetus, without this £87 million carrot over their heads, would there always be like a club or a couple of clubs that, you know, got involved to stop it from happening? So we haven't discussed what the benefits of staying in the freezing cold winter were. Is it just tradition? (laughs) Do you want to hear a compelling one for it? Yeah. This was also from Merging on the Ridiculous. In my opinion, summer rugby is a non-starter. Player fatigue, hard ground injuries, loss of tours to and from the Southern Hemisphere. How will you sell season tickets for periods covering the main holiday months? When will you play the Challenge Cup? Guy Fawkes night? Is there no concept of the summer activities which most of us indulge in? And what in God's name will we do on a Sunday afternoon in November, December, January and February? Checkmate. (laughs) Again, um, maybe this says something of my status as an outsider, but yeah, play the Challenge Cup final on Guy Fawkes night, or if that doesn't work, the following week. Figure it out. (laughs) And as far as activities, um, you can go and rent a videotape, um, (laughs) 10 pin bowling, anything you want to do. There were some more considered arguments, like there was clubs that shared grounds with like cricket teams, and there were arguments on both sides as to which was going to have a more negative effect on groundskeeping. I think it's pretty clear that the summer rugby people were on the right side of that argument, but that was one of the arguments being put up from the other side. Here's the thing. If you're sharing a ground with a cricket club, it means you're on a giant oval and you shouldn't be in Super League. Yeah, yeah, totally. But, I mean, (laughs) we still haven't got rid of that entirely from the equation here, so. (laughs) Two wrongs don't make a right, mate. (laughs) But, yeah, it's kind of funny that, Kind of like the limited tackle rule here where it just gets through and then suddenly everyone just adapts to it. It's like, oh, yeah, playing in summer now. Okay, moving on. Yeah. I think that's the only way in rugby league, honestly. Just Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get it through, deal with the change later. But how are you going to get there? That was the pressing question in the first instance. So it was kind of like so rugby league and such rugby league's luck that all this was happening in the centenary season. So what was supposed to be, you know, this grand celebration of the game's history suddenly gets turned into this four-month truncated season where in, in the best English rugby league tradition, they still jammed in two whole rounds as well as a regal trophy tournament, which was a competition that they then immediately disbanded. <laughs> And so that bridge season ended on the 21st of January with Super League kicking off on the 29th of March. (laughs) Yeah, this is poetic and beautiful. (laughs) So with that bridge season done, it was on to Super League and the revolution was here. So new rules were announced and these were the same rules that we saw in the Australian Super League. So that included the scoring team kicking off, the banning of striking in the ruck or playing forward when there was no marker bringing the scrums in 20 metres from touch, as well as the video referee. So besides the scoring team kicking off, it's things we're still seeing today. 
So, you know, they were on the right path with that one. The other big talking point that was quite controversial was the renaming of the team. So the Wigan Warriors, Leeds Rhinos, Halifax Blue Sox, etc. We discussed this with our interview with Mike Mihal Wood, and I think they've been vindicated on the name. Yeah, I don't think it's that big an issue. And I should say this didn't all happen instantly. So Leeds didn't become the Rhinos until the 1997 season. But yeah, it's one of those things that you can still call them the wire. You are entirely within your right to do that. Like nothing has to change, but it just makes the team a little bit more marketable. I can see why at the time it would have felt a bit American and hokey, but it's if I think of Leeds, I think of the Rhino straight away now. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the other aspect of that was the ground announcing and the, you know, Ian Clayton, who was described as a professional moaning Yorkshireman. Love that description. <laughs> so he said, nowadays, when we score a try, the loudspeaker blares out all this, I want to move it, move it stuff. Then there's this mad <laughs> MC freaking out, going, fantastic try to Eddie Rombo. Totally over the top. And I mean, we're still hearing about those things here today, you know, and I don't love it, but I also understand it as an effective mechanism of like just building up some excitement at the game. Like I kind of think it's lame personally, but I don't have an alternative. Yeah, yeah, there's no right answer, but what a brilliant way to describe it, the move it, move it stuff. (laughs) Exactly how they do it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so ultimately what ended up being a pretty uncontroversial change or something that I think everyone just accepted without too much drama. Amazing in the end, after all the whining. Yeah. But then just before Super League was to launch, you were hit with the blow of the Australian court case going the way of the ARL. And there were real fears at this time that this was going to blow the whole thing up. So Morris Lindsay even admitted that his deal was conditional on the Australian Super League starting. So there were real fears that it was all going to fall apart. And this actually was brought up in court when they were discussing the orders. The News Limited side argued that the judgment had the potential to significantly damage the English game and Burchett going to express his concern at this potential. Well, I mean, he's the guy that caused it all. So, I mean, God. It's funny in court, Bob Ellicott, his response to Burchett's worries about damaging the English game. He said, they are not lily white innocent third parties which like pretty neatly sums up the ARL's attitude to English Rugby League in general. <laughs> it's absolutely cruel the contempt Arthur's had for English football. Oh, well, that leads nicely to my next point, which one of the concerns of the court loss was its potential effect on international football with England and Australia no longer able to play against each other, at least until this was all resolved. And when Arthurson was talking about the £87 million, he said that they live to regret signing because the most money Great Britain makes is when they play Australia. <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, that may be true, but how many tests would they have to play to make £87 million? They play a maximum of three tests a year. <laughs> <laughs> and then he went on to say, I pleaded with them to consult with us before they made any rash decisions. However, they denied us that opportunity. Like, what could the ARL have possibly offered? Contemptuous. And then there were real fears if they didn't get the money because in the best rugby league tradition, 
clubs had already started spending that money before they <laughs> received it. <laughs> of course they had. But of course, those fears were allayed. Murdoch came through with the money and Super League went ahead as planned. And on the 29th of March, we saw the birth of this new era of English Rugby League in Paris, with Paris beating the Sheffield Eagles 30-24. to 24. What a great start for Paris Saint-Germain. But, I mean, I remember being so excited that they were get, had a team in France and it was going to make Rugby League big in France, and I can't wait till the French team's strong again, and alas, we're still waiting. Yeah, totally. But on this opening night, it was, like Morris Lindsay said, some reporters came for a funeral and had to write about a party. John Rebo was there in attendance, and you can imagine how he'd be feeling after a year of going through all of this bullshit and then losing the court case to at least see the vision in reality and, you know, watching rugby league in Paris in this new competition. Like, it would have been a great night for him, I'm sure. He's a homeland. (laughs) And he was joined by over a 1,000 Sheffield fans. See, that's really cool to have, like, your club playing just across the tunnel and you can have a weekend away and that. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. But so over a 1,000 Sheffield fans, five years before, they were struggling to get a 1,000 people to a home match. Yeah. So the crowd was 17,873 on the night. What a start. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not like a full stadium, but it's definitely a positive start and an idea that, wow, this is happening, like Super League, we're in Paris. I don't know why they didn't go with like London versus Paris, though. That seems like an obvious opener. You've got to have the two cities that are most like each other, Sheffield and Paris. <laughs> so there were really positive opening signs. But anytime there's a positive sign in rugby league, there's also portents and concerns and worries that it is all going to fall apart. And, of course, that's what happened. So... Paris ended up lasting two years, and we're going to talk a lot more about the Paris experience down the track. Uh, But needless to say, it was one of the most farcical experiences of the whole war. That is saying something. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sheffield went on to win the 1998 Challenge Cup, but almost immediately went broke, were taken over by Huddersfield in a merger that lasted less than a year before the Sheffield part of the merger was dropped altogether. They, you know, subsequently returned to standalone status, but haven't been cited in Super League since. And when you look at the teams they were talking about in 1996, so, you know, they were talking about a team in Newcastle, Welsh teams, Dublin, Milan, Barcelona. Barcelona, for Christ's sakes. But I mean, continental Europe aside many of those other teams have been tried and like basically all failed like i mean newcastle are back now in third division but when you look at the super league ladder today it's kind of grim like thinking about all the failed efforts of expansion in the you know the 25 years since super league started and you know what we're left with now I was really excited about Welsh teams, Gateshead, Newcastle, Dublin, places that have got some sort of link to rugby league. But I think what they needed was some sort of professional outfit to come in and manage the sport after the Super League change. Yeah. Even if News Limited didn't want to come in and take over the competition, just to at least force a complete restructure of the administration 
the biggest red flag ever is they started spending the eighty-seven million before yeah. they arrived. I mean, that there is going to hang on. Maybe we need some sort of administrator to yeah. uh, control these lunatics. And I think when you look at the third division of English rugby league today, and I know like there's Super League Championship Division One or whatever. I'm just saying the third tier. You're seeing like Coventry, London Scholars, Newcastle, two Welsh teams. Workington bringing that mythical Cumbrian presence. You're seeing like this kind of expansive effort in the third tier while like Catalans aside, we're stuck in the M62 in Super League. And like, how can you work expansion when there's this promotion relegation and teams run the risk of, you know, spending all this money going down? How does it work? I just don't think it's compatible. Is it time to just say this is what it's always going to be and just forget about it? Well, this is that argument. And in my interview with Tony Collins, he said, well, that is a strategy. And if you want to argue for that strategy, well, that's fine. But like, let's move forward with that strategy then. It's not something that I would subscribe to. I'd much prefer expanding the game to more people, but it just seems like it's impossible. But it seems more that you just need to pick a lane and stay in it. Maybe the strategy is to get a solid footing domestically and then expand one at a time nice and calmly and do it like do it um like that way yeah because i mean we can talk about the australian rugby league's struggle with expansion as well but that immediate period in the super league war aside what you're not seeing in australia is a recent history of carcasses of failed expansion teams it reminds me of that band and that quote and you shall know us by the trail of the dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the chopping and changing makes it Mickey Mouse. And mm. I'd like to see a more considered and safe approach to expansion over there. But still, I don't think we should wipe our hands of it. Well, speaking of considered and safe approaches, I had at the end of this chapter a lengthy set of research notes on the overall legacy of Super League. But what I'm suggesting now is that we park that for this episode and for this chapter because these are bigger questions that I think my research in the last few weeks and my chats with Anthony Broxton, with Mike Mehol Wood, with Tony Collins, I think what they've taught me is that we don't know enough and I really want to speak to someone else and spend a bit more considered time on the idea of the legacy of Super League and to weigh up, is it a success? Is it a failure? what can be done to change it, and all those big questions. I think they're questions for another day. Yeah, good stuff. I mean, I'd like to hear from our English listeners because the goal of this podcast was to have intelligent rugby league fans, and we've got that on both sides of the pond. So there'll be some considered thought, I think, from various uh, club fans. And I really want to hear it because the closing point I want to make is that This idea of an ongoing struggle for identity, I hope the three parts of this chapter and those interviews that I mentioned, I hope they've highlighted why that struggle is so complicated and how hard it is to answer these questions. Yeah, really is, man. But yeah, so I hope everyone's enjoyed this episode and this chapter. And again, the discussions we've been having with some of our English fans over the last few weeks have been really amazing and I'd love to hear more and more of them. So anyone can send us your thoughts, obviously, but this especially goes out to our English listeners. I would love to get your insight on anything we've talked about over the course of the last three episodes. And I want to put a special shout out to Castleford fans, given my uh, 
Castleford v Mariners experience where I was really impressed by the passion of their fans. So I'd like to hear what they think over the last 30 years since well, Super League. I'm going to shout out the fans or a particular fan of their chief rival, Featherston. Because we've got a long-time correspondent, Neil, who's a Featherston fan. And for years now, I've just so like greatly cherished his emails. And he's kind of like the epitome of a rugby league man, you know, an ex-coal miner. I think he's a postie now. Featherston guy, as he says, born with a chip on both shoulders. <laughs> Love it. When putting this episode together, I just think of guys like Neil and I'm like, you need to have that insight. You need to speak to these real fans to really understand this culture and this game that is so similar to ours, but so far apart in other ways. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so please send us your thoughts and we will be back uh, with the next chapter of the Super League War very soon. Well done, mate. Great trilogy. All right. Speak to you later. Cheers.